Good evening. Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3, we will look at verses 1 through 7, but we will read through verse 13 for more context. Second Peter 3, will you join me in prayer before we come to hear God's holy word? Our Father, as we come to hear your infallible word read now, Would the same Spirit that breathed out this word indwell us and fill us and make us ready and able to receive it, that you would shine the light of your glory in this word to search out every corner of our heart and life where we are inconsistent with your Lordship, where we pretend autonomy from you, that we may further grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ our Savior, that in particular we would look forward and prepare our hearts for the coming day of the Lord Jesus when he brings in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Be with us, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now would you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read God's infallible Word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to this chapter, we see that Peter is bringing his second epistle to a close. He tells us his pastoral purpose in writing this letter, as well as 1 Peter. He wants to remind the church of what is true, and he wants to equip the church to answer what is false. 
As we've seen from the rest of the letter, particularly in chapter 2, Peter writes this epistle to warn God's people of the false teachers. These false teachers are, are those who do not come from the outside and, and try to implement false teaching in the, in, the ter- in the church that way. They rise up from within. They come from within the congregation, and they try to lead the church astray from within her midst. As we saw in chapter 2, Peter goes in some detail to describe these false teachers. He describes them basically as ungodly in their character and ungodly in their teaching. He's addressing what they believe and how they live. He's, he's dealing with both their doctrine and their practice and how, how those are both wrong. They're both out of accord with God's word. So already we can see from, from this brief overview that doctrine and character are involved with one another. They're not isolatable. They're not distinct and compartmentalized. They actually reveal one another, your doctrine and your character. I heard Ligon Duncan, who's a pastor in the, in the PCA, tell a story about how he counseled one of his, his college students in his church years ago. There was a young man in his church, grew up under fine preaching of the word, left home for college, and then came back a little while later, met with his pastor and said, I'm, I'm beginning to doubt the existence of God. So in, in an amazing moment of pastoral wisdom, Ligon Duncan said to him, okay, let me ask you a personal question. Are you sleeping with your girlfriend? And, and this man was floored. How did my pastor know that was the case? It, you know, he, he looked at him like he was a wizard or, or had some sort of magical power. So he admitted that this was the case, that he had been sleeping with his girlfriend, and that she had indeed broken up with him. So at that point, Ligon Duncan was able to share the gospel with him, saying that it makes perfect sense to me that you're having a crisis of faith when you have had a sin issue like this in your life that has taken a hold of your heart. So that illustrates something of what's going on here with the false teachers. Their problem is not merely their unorthodox teaching. It's not a merely intellectual problem. Their unorthodox teaching comes from their ungodly hearts. So their doctrine and their character are intertwined at every point. So as Peter is warning against these false teachers, in essence he's saying, watch out for them. They are very deceptive. They're good at what they do. So be on your guard. So as he moves into chapter 3, Peter gets even more specific with what these false teachers do. So far, he's described them in broad strokes, that they're greedy for dishonest gain, they're, they're adulterous, they teach heresy, they follow their perverted desires, broad strokes of what, what these false teachers are like. But here he gets more specific in chapter 3. The false teachers, in particular, deny the return of Christ. They deny the second coming. They say that the final judgment at the end of history is not going to take place at all. They hear about Christ's return, and, and they mock it. They, they deride it. They scoff at it. That's what makes them scoffers. In fact, they have to deny that Christ is returning so that they can live in sin. It's a very convenient argument that they, they put forth to the church. There's not going to be a judgment at the end of history, so you can do whatever you want. You're not going to give, give account for anything you do to the body, in the body. So the return of Christ is not good news to them. They don't look forward to his return. All they want is the perverted pleasure they find in this age. They don't want the glory of the age to come. So we should ask ourselves, in light of this, what is our response to hearing of Christ's return? As you hear, hear about the return of Christ, maybe you're like these scoffers. You hear about the return of Christ, and you think, let me stop you right there, not interested, it's just a myth. 
If that is the case, then you need to hear this word, perhaps especially. You think there's no evidence that Christ will return at the end of history, just as these scoffers do. But as we will see, God's word is clear, absolutely clear, that Christ's return is absolutely certain. And you need to hear how to escape God's wrath that will be poured out on that day. But maybe you do believe that Christ will return. You affirm the second coming of Christ at the end of history. Perhaps day to day in the regular affairs of life, that's just functionally irrelevant to you. Perhaps that's because you hear about the return of Christ and you think that's way too complicated an issue. There's so many millennial views out there. There's different kinds of premillennialism and amill and postmill. I don't, I don't even want to think about that. Or perhaps you hear about the return of Christ and it's irrelevant because you've grown cold in your affection for the Lord. You've set your mind on earthly things instead of on heavenly things where Christ is. And so the, the return of Christ just doesn't sound good to you. Whatever the case may be, we all need to be reminded of the simple truth, what Peter unpacks for us here, of the full manifestation of God's glory at the end of history, his salvation to his elect and his judgment to those who hate him, the simple truth of the coming of the day of judgment for God's enemies and of joy and refreshing for those who wait for him in faith. So that leads us, first of all, to see that Peter exhorts us to remember the truth in verses 1 and 2. Remember the truth. So Peter wants us to remember what we already know. Not a lot of new information here. He wants us to remember what we already know. He says there in in verse 1 that in both of his letters, he is stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He wants to stir us up. That word for stirring up has to do with waking someone up from sleep, stirring up someone who is asleep. Peter himself was familiar with this need, the need to be stirred up. You think back in, in, the, in the last part of Matthew when Jesus takes the disciples with him to Gethsemane to watch and pray. Peter goes with Jesus there. Soon before Jesus is about to die, Jesus is in agony anticipating his death. And, he, and Jesus tells Peter and the, and the disciples, wait here and watch and pray. And they, they didn't do that. They didn't do so well. They, they fell asleep. Peter and the disciples began to fall asleep when they were supposed to be praying. So Peter understands the need to be stirred up, to be awakened from his slumber, to stay awake and pray during Jesus' agony. Calvin puts it this way, that the, the minds of the godly become dim. They, they get rusty. We get drowsy, so to speak, if we aren't constantly reminding ourselves of the truth. Knowing the truth is not one and done. We need to be reminded of it over and over. That's true for the new Christian as well as the veteran saint. For all of us individually and corporately, we always need the continual calling to mind of the truth we've already been taught. That simple catechetical faith the ABCs of the Christian religion. As he goes on into verse 2, Peter wants us to remember something in particular. He wants us to remember the teaching of the prophets, of the apostles, and of Christ himself. He wants us to remember the predictions of the prophets. Remember also the commandment of Christ through the apostles. Well, prophets, Christ, and apostles, that's the entire Bible. Remember everything God has revealed through his prophets and, and apostles. Remember the prophets, how they foretold the sufferings and glories of Christ to come. Remember the apostles, how they went and proclaimed the fulfillment of all God's promises in the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember all these things that you've been taught. 
Remember what Christ told his disciples right before his ascension. Think back to Luke 24. Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, all of God's word pointing to the Lord Jesus, the whole Bible being about him, his coming, his death and resurrection, and his return at the end of history. All of it is about him. So remember this. When the scoffers t- come and they try to deceive you, remember this. That the only thing left on the calendar is his return. As, as Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in particular... We focus on the negative aspect, so to speak, of Christ's return at this point, that Christ will return at the end of the age for judgment. Remember these things. Remember them, especially because the scoffers are going to come and try to convince you that this is not the case. Remember these things when the scoffers come. So that leads us secondly to see Peter wants us to withstand the scoffers, verses 3 and 4. Well, this word for, for scoffers, those who come with their scoffing, this is just a, a reference to their mocking, to their ridicule. They, they hear about Christ's return, and they, they, they blow it off. Yeah, right, that, that's not going to happen. They think the notion that Christ is going to return, that he's going to judge all men, is just bogus. Not, not convinced of that. So they pretend that there's no evidence for any of it. They try to, to craft an argument. They try to make it logical. They try to craft an argument to, to surround and, and to buttress their unbelief. They want to keep living in sin, so they, to, they want to make up reasons to prove that Christ is not going to return. So notice there in verse 3 that when the scoffers come, knowing this first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Notice when they come. They come in the last days. This is one of the proofs that we're living in the last days, is that scoffers have come. The last days are that final chapter of history, the last stage in human history. It's the period when Christ pours out his spirit upon his church. Well, when are those last days? They're they're right now. We live between Christ's first and second appearances. Christ has already been exalted. He's already been raised. He's already poured out his spirit upon his church. Those, biblically speaking, are the last days. We are living in them right now. We live between the two great appearances of, of the Lord Jesus, his, his birth in the fullness of time and his return at the end of history. These are the last days. And one evidence that we live in the last days is that scoffers will come pretending that those things are not true, trying to convince God's people that this is all a hoax. Now, as the scoffers come... Peter goes on to say, they follow their sinful desires. They want to try to craft an argument to prove that there is going to be no final judgment in which they have to give account for their deeds so that they can keep on doing what they want to do. They follow their sinful desires. This word here is is just simply lust or passion. They they follow their lusts. It's the same word in, in 1 John 2, that familiar triad of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. 
completed with the, the pride of life. The, the, so the scoffers follow their lusts. They, just, they want to do what they want to do. So this word for sinful desires, David Pallison refers to this as the catch-all for what is wrong with us. It's the, it's the one-stop summary for our drift from God. Our, our lusts are, are, are the shorthand for the problem of human beings. It is the fallen human condition to have these lusts. It is, it is the grasping and demanding nature of the human heart. I have to have these things, these inordinate, life-ruling desires. I must have this instead of God. I must worship this instead of God. Anything that we use to bring down the Lord Jesus uh, from, our, from our heart's position of worship. So the scoffers mock these things. They, they mock the things of God. They, they ridicule them and deride them. They have no desire for Christ to return. They just want to live in their sinful desires instead. So in that sense, they are the opposite of the believer who only desires for Christ to return, not to live in this present evil age, not to live in this present wilderness. But this is the, the thing that the scoffers mock, which, looks at, which leads us to uh, look at verse 4. What, what are the scoffers particularly going to say? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Very interesting technique there. Very interesting argument to try to prove that we can do whatever we want. We can live as we please. That there's going to be no judgment at the end of history. So the scoffers are trying to argue that Christ is not going to return There's not going to be a final judgment, that God is not going to intervene in history. They're trying to prove that Christ is not going to come in judgment. And they do this by trying to show that God is not going to judge men in the future because he's never judged men in the past. Do you see how they try to craft that argument? God is not going to judge men in the future because he's never done so in the past. God's not going to come in judgment because he's never done that before. All things continue as they were from the beginning of the world. So you can't tell me there's going to be a final judgment in which I have to give account for my deeds. There's never been anything like that in all of history. Why would it come at the end of history? So don't try to impose your religious agenda on me. Nobody's going to judge me for anything. There's no divine intervention in history ever. So why would there be a divine intervention in history at the end? So that, that's their crafty argument. Nothing like the return of Christ has ever happened, so it's not going to happen. And these are the kinds of things that the false teachers use to, to, to wrangle in the, those who are not established in the faith and lead them astray. And this is exactly why Peter tells us to remember what we've been taught. Remember what the Lord has, has taught us in his incarnation. Remember what the prophets predicted. Remember what the apostles have taught when Christ was exalted. So what, what is the particular response that Peter gives to the scoffers? And that leads us thirdly to see how to answer them, how to answer the scoffers in verses 5 to 7. This is a really amazing technique that Peter uses. There, there, there could have been a lot of relevant and, and legitimate ways to answer the scoffers, but Peter answers them by appealing to the history of the Old Testament, going way back to, to the beginning, almost to the beginning, to Noah. So he answers the skepticism about the future by appealing to the past. It's, broadly speaking, the same thing that the scoffers do, but it's based upon God's word. 
Peter says there that they deliberately overlook these things. So maybe even getting to the intention of their heart. They might even ignore these facts on purpose. They might even shut their eyes to what God's word says. They might deliberately overlook these things. And the first thing they overlook in verse 5 is that God is the creator. Verse 5, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Simply, they, they overlooked the fact that God spoke, and it was. God said, let there be, and it came forth. God made all things by his powerful word. He created all things by his word, so he sustains things by his word. They overlook the fact that God is creator, and God is the God of providence. And the second thing the scoffers overlook is, is the significance of Noah's flood. Look there at verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the scoffers look back all through history, and they say there's no intervention of divine judgment ever. Ever since the beginning, all things have been going on static. No intervention of judgment in history. They seem to overlook the fact that the significance of Noah's flood was that it was a judgment of God. They fail to see that it was an instance of God's judgment. So the scoffers would have us believe, they would, have, they would rewrite history and have us believe that God has never intervened. God has never condescended in judgment. So Peter simply points out, yes, he has. You can't even get six chapters into your Bible without seeing that there has been an intervention in judgment. From the fall to Noah's day, that's, that's what Peter calls the world that then existed. The world was full of wickedness, and so God judged the entire world by water. He judged it in the flood. That was one of God's first interventions in history for judgment. And so the scoffers overlook this because it doesn't fit with their worldview. It doesn't make sense of their system. It means they would have to repent and change their, their lifestyle. The scoffers overlook this. They, they, they overlook that God has already judged the entire world. There's already been a worldwide judgment by water in, in the flood. And so that is, that is a guarantee that God will judge the world again. He's already done it. He's going to do it again. Which leads us to, to verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, so that, that's the contrast between the first world, the world that then existed, and the world that now exists. The first world, of course, perished by water in Noah's, Noah's flood. But this world is going to perish by fire. The world is, this world is being preserved for that great day of judgment to come. And that day is a day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly, just as that day in, in Noah's day was a destruction of the ungodly. God destroyed the wicked in the flood in Noah's day. He will destroy the wicked with fire when, the, when Christ returns at the end of history. So the scoffers, plain and simple, are wrong. They've rewritten history. They, they've put it in their own terms to fit their own system, and they're wrong. Those who mock that the second coming of Christ will not happen, they have no basis for their mockery. They've simply made it up. So the world was destroyed with water in Noah's day, and the world will be destroyed with fire at the return of Christ. So maybe you're still like the scoffers. You're not convinced 
that Christ is going to return. You're not convinced that God actually did come and judge the world by water in Noah's day. You hear about the return of Christ, and you still think it's foolishness. You, you hear that there have been instances of divine judgment in history. You, you've heard that there was a flood in Noah's day. That was the means by which he judged the world in a judgment by water. But you also know that there will be another instance of divine judgment in history when, when Christ returns to judge his enemies. And you think, I still don't believe that either. Well, then you have to consider this. What was the only way of escape from Noah's flood? Was there any way to escape that judgment? It was the God-appointed means of the ark. God had Noah build the ark as a means of escaping his judgment in the flood. The ark was God's way of escaping his wrath in that day. He destroyed all who did not repent in the judgment by water. But he, by grace, preserved Noah and his family because he believed in God. God made a way of escape in Noah's day. He made the ark to preserve a remnant. And he's made a way of escape in our day as well. So to avoid the judgment of the flood, Noah's family were supposed to enter the door of the ark. So how are we to escape the judgment of fire? Is there an ark to be provided for us? There is such an ark. There is the door. Christ is called the door by whom we enter and are saved. We must be found in Christ to escape the judgment of fire. But of course, there was another instance, a, a greater instance of divine judgment in history other than the, than the flood. It was when the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross. It was the day when God poured out his wrath, the fire of his wrath upon Christ in his death. It was the day when the ultimate wrath of God broke into history and it was borne by the Lord Jesus. And that even greater than the flood, it was the greatest instance of divine judgment the world has seen yet. So Christ has borne the fire of God's wrath already in his body on the cross. And so the wrath that God will pour out at the end of this age has already come upon Christ in his death. Noah's family, by God's grace, were shielded from God's wrath in the ark. And so all who are in Christ are shielded from God's wrath to come if, they, if we place our faith in him. Noah's family passed through God's judgment in the ark, but the only way we will pass through God's judgment to come is to be found in Christ Jesus. So if you were like these scoffers, you think about the second coming and think it's, think it's bogus, you really have two choices. You either believe in the one who took God's wrath in place of sinners, you either found in him and escaped judgment, or you take it upon yourself for all eternity. Those are the only options. Either you escape God's wrath to come by bowing the knee now, or you receive the full weight of God's wrath forever. So you know, you have heard now, that God has sovereignly displayed his judgment in history at various times, in the flood, destroying it by, by water, in the cross, when, Christ poured out, when God poured out his wrath upon Christ in that, in that judgment. So you know that he will do so again at the end of this age. That is what refutes the scoffers. You know that the ungodly will be destroyed. And so the only way to escape God's judgment is to get on board the ark, period. Matthew Henry said it well. Those who now scoff at a future judgment shall find it a day of vengeance and utter destruction. Beware, therefore, of being among these scoffers. Never question, but the day of the Lord will come. Give diligence, therefore, to be found in Christ. 
that that may be a time of refreshment and a day of redemption to you, which will be a day of indignation and wrath to the ungodly world. So don't listen to the scoffers. Don't hear about any arguments that would, that would suppose to disprove that Christ is returning. He absolutely will come. That is for sure. We've already seen instances of God's judgment in history, a guarantee that he will return in judgment at the end of history. So there is a fire judgment to come, and it will come upon all people. But the only question is, are you going to come under God's judgment, under, under that fire judgment, or will you pass it because you have been found in the Lord Jesus, because you hid yourself in the door? That door remains open, but you must enter it. God's judgment will surely come just as it already has. But God in his grace has provided a way of escape. He has provided his son as the only means for us to pass judgment when that day comes. So the ark is open, just as it was in Noah's day. The door is open, but we must enter in to be saved. Would you pray with me? Our Father, you indeed are rich in mercy and grace toward us. That, that you would not destroy us for our sin is only for your mere free grace and good pleasure. We thank you that you've been pleased to condescend to us to provide a means of escape from your righteous wrath in the Lord Jesus, that you have poured out your wrath upon him, and that we who by faith take hold of him will come to know you in that time of joy and refreshing in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Will you take this word now and apply it to our hearts that we may cling to the Lord Jesus, not listening to the, the skepticism of this present evil age, and would you open our hearts that even some here right now would come to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and delight in him, for he is our salvation and our treasure. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.